Hi, Peter Bregman here. Before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that registration for a very special program, the Bregman Leadership Intensive, is now open. It's unlike any leadership program you've been to before. We don't talk about leadership in the intensive. We actually engage in experiences that bring out the best of who you can be as a leader. We uncover blind spots that you may have, and in it, you will learn how to get around those blind spots in order to remove the obstacles that prevent you from contributing your maximum potential. To apply and see if you're the right fit, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership. And you can learn more about the intensive there. We only have 20 spots open and we're filling up. So don't hesitate to apply now. That's bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to apply for the intensive today. That's it for now. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. I'm here with Jeff Colvin, who wrote most recently, Humans Are Underrated, What High Achievers Know That Brilliant Machines Never Will. I love his writing. I'm super excited to have him here with us. He wrote before this, Talent is Overrated, which was also a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, it's worth picking up. Jeff is Fortune's senior editor at large. He's a fantastic journalist. He's a generally smart and insightful guy. Jeff, welcome so much to the show. Thank you, Peter, very much. As I just said, I loved your book and I love your writing. Um, if you could share with us to get started kind of the big idea. Writing a book is a big thing. Why did you bother to write it and what's the big idea? Yeah, uh, what got me to write the book was a couple of things that I was just observing. One of them was there's a lot of anxiety. I, I saw people getting more worried even than they had been in the past about what might happen to them as technology advances and is able to do more and more advanced things, as technology gets to be really good at high-value skills, things that used to earn people a lot of money, not just the old sort of middle-value skills that technology was good at. So people were really getting worried about this. And at the same time, for the first time in history, we were seeing mainstream economists and technologists questioning, at least questioning, whether technology might now be eliminating jobs faster than it is creating them. Uh, the concern has been there since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, but the answer was always the same. Technology did destroy some jobs, but it always created more jobs, and the new ones were higher value jobs. So, you know, on the whole, technology always increased employment and raised living standards. And now we had mainstream people saying, maybe, just maybe that era is over and we're now going to go the other direction. And so this is, you know, of historical significance. So I thought this had to be addressed. That's why I wrote the book. And your view, of course, is that, uh, you know, don't underrate us as human beings, that we're not done yet. Right. That, that's exactly right. Uh, in other words, in searching for the high-value skills, you know, what, how are we going to add value? How are we going to earn a living and 
with any luck at all, how are we going to have rising living standards, not just us, but our kids as well? The conclusion I came to was that the high value skills as technology advances will actually be our most deep and essential human skills, the skills of human interaction, the things that take place only between two or more human beings. And uh, that's why our humanness is going to turn out to be the most valuable thing we've got. You know, the, the, you, as I was reading and as I'm listening to you, I'm reminded of this story that I uh, read about in the papers recently about the Google auto drive car. And you talk about the, the, the driverless car uh, a bunch in the book. And there was this one piece that I'm, I'm so interested in because we talk about, you know, the fact, and I think you mentioned this in your book, there's been no accidents except one that was caused by a human rear-ending uh, one of the automatic cars. But there was an automatic car, a Google car, that was stuck at a four-way intersection forever because humans never actually stopped. And that car was programmed to wait to stop for humans. And since human drivers never actually stop. They just kind of glide through. It was stuck there for hours, not being able to move. Right. And this, I saw that same thing. And it is really interesting because the car was programmed to follow all traffic laws scrupulously. Well, it turns out sometimes you just can't get anywhere if you're following all the laws scrupulously. And so, yes, what they've had to do, and I, as I'm sure you read in the article, what they are doing now is reprogramming the car to be, well, to behave as safely as possible uh, in a world filled with human drivers. Right. And so now they're teaching it that, you know, you've got to send these little signals to the other drivers by advancing your car a little bit uh, at the, at the four-way stop. Uh, and, you know, it's, it is really fascinating. And the bottom line that comes out of this, of course, is they can fix the, they can fix the software. They can fix the software to make it understand us well enough. Yeah, to act actually slightly less rationally, in a sense. Less, less rationally, less perfectly, more humanly. So, you know, that's, I, I love that word, humanly, right? Because one of the things you said was high-value activities. And I, I'm, I'm curious, like, whether these are actually – and, I, you know, I don't know that it's worth speaking too much about it, but whether they're – high value skills or just human skills and the fact that mostly what we're doing is creating a world for humans not machines those human skills by definition become higher value because you know because otherwise we'll be stuck uh, stuck at a four-way intersection forever <laughs> well yeah that i mean in a way that i mean that is precisely right in other words the skills that are not deeply human are being taken over by the technology and in fact, everybody should ask themselves, does my job require or reward the deep human skills of interaction between two people? Because if the answer is no, then that job's going away. And we better face that reality. It's going away sooner or later, probably sooner than you think. Um, here's, a, here's one way to think about this in the big picture. For the last 250 years, you know, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, humans in large part got rewarded for behaving more like machines, right? Starting in the early mills and factories, the job of the human was to turn a wrench a particular way or to pick something up here and put it down there over and over and over again. You know, these were repetitive 
jobs or even in offices where people had to add up columns of numbers and you know eventually they could do it with an adding machine but they were still people were behaving like machines and we got rewarded for being machine like well we have finally reached a point in history where machines can themselves do the machine work of our world uh, we humans don't have to do the machine work anymore and in fact we'll never do it as well as the machines can now do it so what's left for us are the human skills and and you you paint this simultaneously hopeful and scary picture right which is that we all come with what you talk about are human universals, right? Capabilities. And you talk about them as empathy and storytelling and, and uh, collaboration, creativity, these things that are sort of uniquely human and that those will never go away as high value skills. Simultaneously, you talk about how we're losing those skills because yes. we're interacting so much with computers, almost at the exclusion in some situation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it is quite something to see because just as these skills are becoming more valuable, the demand for them is increasing, the supply of them is decreasing. And there is a lot of interesting research on it that is all pointing in the same direction, which is that the more time we spend uh, interacting digitally or generally staring into screens, the more that our skills of deep human interaction, empathy, relationship building, uh, social sensitivity, uh, co-creating, the more that those skills deteriorate. They are actually uh, withering in many people. Um, there is even evidence that empathy in college students has decreased very significantly over the past 30 years, especially in the past 10 or 15 years. And so it is it's another reason, actually, why these skills are going to be even higher value, because if the demand is increasing and the supply is decreasing, any economist can tell you that's the formula for something being worth a lot. And so I, I want to put two of your books together, right? Because Talent yes. is Overrated was very much about the fact that we can really develop in many ways and that we don't have to simply rely on talent. I'm, I'm sim oversimplifying it. But you're right. And so... Yeah. What I wonder is, from your perspective, to what degree are these things like creativity and empathy and storytelling and collaboration, to what degree are they developable and what should we be doing? They are absolutely skills that can be developed. And this is a crucially important point because so many people think of them as traits, things that you bring into this world or don't. You know, you got it or you don't. And we all, you know, we often say, oh, so-and-so is a real people person or something like that. You know, as if this is an inborn ability. They are absolutely skills that can be developed, and we are seeing a lot of institutions, pioneering institutions, really developing these skills in their people. And they're doing it in all kinds of innovative ways, but fundamentally, the way you get better at these uh, skills are the same way you get better at anything else, as I described in the previous book. There are steps the way you do it, and it turns out that they work just as well with things like uh, empathy and relationship building. So you have, you, you have a lot of um, military examples, which I enjoyed. Yeah. And one of them was the importance of something you called AAR, or the After Action Review, which was a, a, a time where after a military uh, project or intervention or, or movement, 
that we would look back on it, they would look back on it and ask really hard questions and with brutal honesty and improve and develop their capability to perform as a team moving forward, which is a uniquely human skill in many ways. One question that I had as I was reading that is, can we have too much empathy? And what I mean by that is, for me to be brutally honest with you, I have to be willing to slightly step on your toes, and I would want to do it in maybe a kind way, but to really improve performance, I have to be willing to have difficult conversations with you, say things you may not want to hear. Will my you know, developed empathy get in the way of that? Uh, it's a very legitimate question because you've gone to the heart of why this kind of thing doesn't work in some organizations. It's a cultural thing. And I should just to give one sentence of background, uh, for anyone in today's military, life without the after action review is inconceivable. Uh, everyone in today's military grew up with it, and they can't imagine it uh, being otherwise, but it was introduced in the 70s and 80s, and it revolutionized, starting in the Army, and it revolutionized uh, the Army, and it was a cultural change. And so when people ask about getting started with making these changes in their organization, I often say, let's start with feedback in your organization. Right. Do you have a culture where giving frequent, rigorous, honest feedback is culturally okay? Or do people freak out when anyone offers something that's less than laudatory? It may not even be a severe criticism, but can somebody just, you know, say something that's, you know, not laudatory and it's okay? And if the answer is no, you can't do that, then the first thing that has to change is the culture. That has to be okay. It has to be understood that people are all of goodwill, that if we're offering a criticism, it's for a good reason, and we, you know, we have the best of intentions. And that's a, I'll tell you, there are a lot of organizations that have tried to adopt the after-action review, and it hasn't worked, and that's why. Yeah, and it seems like you know, there's one way in which I can imagine that empathy can be redirected in that way, which is to say, even if it's a difficult message I have to send to you, ultimately, I'm doing it with care and love and a commitment to your development. And so it's not like I'm empathizing with the way you're going to feel in this particular moment, although maybe I am, but I, I'm coming from a place of respect and support of your overall development and growth. That, that's exactly right. And the people who are really good at this, and I've spoken to some, some of them about this, they take the point of view that telling someone the truth is in fact the kindest thing you can do. And they realize that it may not feel good in the moment and it may be difficult, but they can do it because they have worked it out in their mind that they are showing care for this person. It's the best thing they can do. So I've spoken with a bunch of social psychologists recently, uh, most recently Dick Nesbitt, who's a wonderful guy also and wrote Mindware, which I also thought was a great book. And it's such an interesting conversation to read your book and his book uh, one after the other, because what he's saying many ways is there are so many uh, ways in which our thinking is irrationally influenced by context and the things around us. And so let me share with you 
how these things operate. So maybe you'll be a little immune to them and you can act more rationally. And in many ways, you're saying, hey, here's the upside to irrationality. Like in some situations, it's better to be a little irrational and to be, you know, empathically influenced in a way that's not necessarily rational, but ultimately will get us to a better outcome. That's exactly right. And so, you know, look, 40 years of behavioral economics has established beyond all doubt that when it comes to making economic and financial decisions, for example, we are absolutely irrational. And when it comes to making those kinds of decisions, that's a bad thing. You know, we want to be doing logical, rational analysis and making the right decisions. So this is enormously valuable work. And it's, and it's uh, you know, totally great that Daniel Kahneman got a Nobel Prize for doing this because it's revolutionized our thinking. What they're talking about is how we think, how we reason, and our logic. What I'm talking about in the book is something completely different. It's our feelings and our interactions with other human beings. And when it, when it comes to that, being guided by our instincts, which is, can lead us so far astray in financial decisions, turns out to be a good thing. Our deep instincts about how to interact with other people will often help us and guide us in a way that, you know, pure rationality just isn't up. That's not the job of pure rationality. And furthermore, we do stuff sometimes that is irrational. But as human beings, we both understand it. It, it, it bonds us. And that's a lot of the value that people are going to have. Jeff, you're your senior leader in an organization. And what I'm curious about is in writing the book and in discovering and exploring the ideas in it, has that affected the way you lead and the way you manage? Yeah, it has. Uh, it really has. Because I was falling into the trap that so many are falling into of doing more and more communication digitally rather than in person, or if not in person, then on the phone. And I really came to an appreciation of what I was losing. And I have absolutely made myself do much more in-person interaction than I used to. And yes, it takes more time. You know, it's sometimes it's inefficient, right? It's a bother. And yet I am absolutely certain that it's worth all of it. And so you have to make yourself do it in our present day, but I have made myself do it, and I'm very glad that I do it. I, I continue to force myself to do it more and more. It really makes a difference. It's actually interesting that you say that because it also it reinforces for me. I mean, we're we're doing this interview, and it's a podcast interview. People will just be listening to it, but somehow for all my interviews, it's felt important for me to have the video on and to look at you. And it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference to see your face and to talk to you face to face, even though, you know, it's through a digital interface. And, uh, but it, but it enriches the conversation for me. And, and for me too. And it's, I'm so glad to hear you mention that because look, I've been, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts and so, and so forth. And it's generally on the phone or maybe Skype, but just audio. And, I noticed that you wanted to do this with video, even though the product is pure audio. And so now sitting here having it, I was thinking just, this is the first time I've done this. I was thinking exactly what you just said. Being able to see one another 
produces a better conversation, even though people will only hear the audio. It's a really good idea that you have, <laughs> and I had never seen it. But I, I now I'm going to do the same thing. Thanks. And uh, the upside is if I see you in the street, I could say hello to you and you'll say hello to me too. We have a relationship now, which we didn't, we wouldn't have had in the same way if we were just on the audio. Listen, I mean, that's no joke. That's yeah. no joke. When people see one another, all kinds of stuff happens that is, we're not even consciously aware of. People mimic one another's posture, for example. Uh, they mimic one another's expressions and we're not aware we're doing it, but our brains deep down are aware of it, and it builds a relationship. Jeff Colvin, thank you so much. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, it, it's, this is a really important book for leaders. I've seen otherwise really strong leaders come apart because they focus on being right, or they focus on being efficient, or they focus on you know just being as fast and productive as they can, and they lose out on the importance of the human relationship, which is so critical to our success. And you give a, a rationale and, and an, a deeper understanding to that importance and, and how to leverage it. So I so appreciate you being uh, on the podcast. The book is Humans Are Underrated, What High Achievers Know That Brilliant Machines Never Will. Jeff Colvin is not a brilliant machine. He's a brilliant individual. <laughs> and it's really, it's really been my great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Peter. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.